Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter 2, 4, our study through this first epistle from the Apostle Peter has brought us to verse 4 of chapter 2. And really, ever, as we've been going through it, ever since verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter's been exhorting his Christian readers to be who they are in Christ. And now in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Peter is going to be teaching the believers about their corporate identity in Christ. Peter wants them to know who they are together as the body of Christ, understanding what God is doing in them and through them. And so verses 4 through 10 are going to give us rich truths about the universal church. But these verses will also teach us about our Lord Jesus Christ because it, um, the church's identity is rooted in the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the two go hand in hand, right? For us to understand who we are as the church, we need to uh, have our eyes fixed on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished so as I was studying these verses, I was trying to figure out the best way to <laughs> present them, right? And here's the plan that I landed on. I don't know if it's the best way, but um, my plan is for us this morning to focus our time on Christ from verses 4 through 8, and then next week we'll focus mainly on the church, which is verses 9 and 10, but also verse 5, okay? So there, there'll be some overlap to be sure, but that's... That's the plan, is let's focus on Christ this morning, and then out of that, uh, we'll turn our attention to the church next week. So I'd ask the congregation to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. I'll go ahead and read verses 4 through 10, even though we'll, we'll just go through verse 8 this morning. Let's hear the Word of God together. As you come to Him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Where is your hope this morning? Where, where is the anchor for your soul? As you look out in life and you see the world in chaos... Where do you turn to? Where do your thoughts go for, for what's going to happen or, or who's in control or where's all this going to end? And then when, when tragedy strikes you personally, 
As, as the hymn says, when, when all around our world gives sway, who is your hope and your stay? Where do you turn to? Do you turn to yourself? Do you, do you turn to, to institutions? I pray that everyone finds their, their hope, both for this life and for eternal life, in Christ alone. Because that it, He is the only place where hope can be found. And so the title of the message today is Christ the Cornerstone. Christ the Cornerstone. In this passage, Jesus is described as God's chosen and precious cornerstone. And so my, my prayer today with the, the sermon is that God by His Spirit through His Word will cause Jesus to be precious to you today. I mean, don't you think we should have the same opinion about Jesus as God does? And this passage says that Jesus is God's chosen and precious cornerstone. So may God increase our joy and, and enlarge our view of Christ today. May all of us leave this room today just being in, increasingly convinced at how precious Jesus is as we consider who he is and what he has done and what God is doing through him. So that's, that's my prayer today, that God would do that for his glory and our good. So I want to work through verses 4 through 8 under four headings. And again, they're all going to be centered around our Lord Jesus Christ, because that's where we're focusing this morning. Heading number one is rejection of Jesus. Rejection of Jesus. Verse 4 says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. The him in verse 4 is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that from the context. Peter describes him as a living stone. Right? That should catch our attention. Why a living stone? Well, living because Jesus has been raised from the dead, never to die again. And stone because Peter is using the metaphor of a building project in this passage as he shows how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies that use that same image. Notice that Jesus, the living stone, was rejected by men. Right? And we sing about that. We, we, we know that, sadly, is true. But think about that. Jesus the eternal Son of God came to earth and yet was rejected by men. He came to earth as the promised Messiah, as the promised King that God would send to deliver and rule in righteousness. And although the Jews were waiting for and longing for the Messiah, when Jesus, the actual Messiah, came, they rejected him by and large. John 1.10 says of Jesus, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Talking about how the Jews, again, by and large, rejected their Messiah. They would not accept that he was the promised king from God. And so verse 4 Speaks of that rejection. Verse 7 does as well in our passage today. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter 2. It describes that rejection in terms of a building project. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you see the picture is of a, of, of, there's a building project happening. And, and men who were, built, were involved in this building project, probably building the temple, were exa they examined this stone 
They, they're looking for a cornerstone. They're looking for that important first piece of the foundation. And they see this stone, who is Jesus Christ, and they examine it and they, they reject it. They pitch it to the side. They say, this stone will not do. No, this stone will, it is not suitable for our building project. They reject it. They cast him aside. And what Peter's doing there in verse 7, he's quoting Psalm 118.22 because Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. This is, in fact, what the Jews did to Jesus, didn't they? Especially the Jewish leaders. Think about it. When Jesus was on earth, when he was ministering, when he was proclaiming the good news of the coming kingdom of God, when he was announcing that the time was at hand, that the Messiah had come, the Jewish leaders examined Jesus. They, they heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. They understood his claims that he was making. They even questioned him about that, right? They said, tell us who you are. But yet they, as Jesus revealed that to them, as he declared who he was, they rejected him. They, they rejected Jesus as coming from God. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Think about what the, how the Gospels record that for us. Think of some of the things the Jewish leaders said about Jesus. The Messiah does not come from Galilee. The Messiah would not be eating with tax collectors and sinners. Well, if this, if this man were the Messiah, if he were a righteous man, he would know what sort of woman this is who's touching him now. The Messiah would have been trained in one of our schools. The Messiah would hold to the traditions of the Pharisees. The Messiah would be removing the Gentiles. He would be restoring the physical kingdom of Israel. No, they examined Jesus and they concluded Jesus is not the Messiah. He is not the promised king from God. They inspected Jesus and cast him aside. They rejected him and in fact labeled him a blasphemer. They condemned Jesus to die and handed him over to the Romans. And, and when Pilate, the Roman governor, tried to free Jesus, the Jewish leaders incited the crowds to say, to shout, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar, they said. He is not our king. They mocked and, and, and ridiculed him. And, and, and uh, they, with glee, wanted, were, they were uh, with glee over the fact that Pilate, in fact, condemned him. That Pilate sent him away to die. And so they, they joyfully watched Jesus be beaten and scourged and paraded down the road to Calvary's Mount. And while Jesus is hanging there then, willingly, dying in the place of his people, they mocked him, they ridiculed him while he was in agony there. They shouted things like, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he is the king of Israel, in other words, if he is the Messiah as he claims, let him come down now and then we'll believe in him. No, they rejoiced over Jesus' death. They would not believe that Jesus was the promised king sent from God. And so they would not come to Jesus for eternal life. Instead, as Peter said in Acts 3, they killed the author of life. So that was the rejection of Jesus. But notice... We see in this passage, we see in the good news of the gospel is that rejection of Jesus was not the final word. <laughs> and that brings us to our second heading, the vindication of Jesus. 
Verse 4 gets to that, the vindication of Jesus says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Yes, Jesus was rejected in the eyes of many men, but in the eyes of the one who really counts, God Almighty, he was chosen and precious. Think about those adjectives there. Jesus was chosen by God. He was chosen to be the Savior who would come and deliver his people from their sins. And we know that before the creation of the world, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit agreed to this plan of salvation which would have the Son take on a human nature and lay down his life as a ransom for many. And then when when that time came, For the son to humble himself by coming to earth and being born a virgin. We know Jesus was obedient. He did it willingly. He did it for the father's glory. He did it out of love for his own. And when that time came, think of the different uh, indicators we read in scripture of how the father was pleased with him. Uh, We already see the father declaring, this is my chosen son. This is the one whom I delight in. He is precious to me. Think about it, the time of Jesus' birth. God the Father sent myriads of angels to sing at Jesus' birth, shouting, uh, glory to God on the highest. And then years later, when Jesus began his public ministry by identifying with sinners in the waters of baptism, the Father powerfully declared that he was his chosen and precious one, that he delighted in him. Remember that scene. Matthew 3.16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That was the Father publicly endorsing Jesus, affirming Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. See the Holy Spirit come down on him. He is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. He is doing what we have agreed for him to do. And that wasn't the only time in Jesus' ministry. Later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father again declared the preciousness of Jesus. Matthew 17, 5 says... Man, remember that scene. Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So yes, Jesus was precious in God's eyes. The Father loved his Son. He was proud of his Son because Jesus was obedient all the way to death on a cross. And that, by the way, and this is what's so ironic, right, in the gospel, and and we see it even in this passage. Yes, men rejected Jesus, but it was through that very rejection that God was accomplishing his purposes. And it was through that, that very rejection that led to his ultimate vindication. And so when we think about the vindication of Jesus, it's not just these, these voices from heaven as great as those are. His ultimate vindication came By him being raised from the dead. Although Jesus was put to death as a condemned criminal, God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. And the resurrection was God the Father's declaration that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He has come from the Father. 
He is the Savior, the promised one, the Savior of all who believe in him. And so think about that ultimate vindication. The Father demonstrated how precious Jesus is by raising him from the dead, and not only that, but by exalting him to the highest place. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven where he reigns now, today, from the Father's right hand. A place of supreme honor, a place of supreme authority. As Ephesians 1 says, he's been given authority far above all other rule and power and authority, both in the physical and the spiritual world. He has been vindicated. And, And one day upon his return, right, Jesus has already been given the name above all names. And one day upon his return, that will be his ultimate vindication. When everyone sees his glory. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 says. So yes, Jesus was rejected by men, but what a great contrast we see in verse 4, right? But he is chosen and precious in God's eyes. Yes, Jesus was condemned and killed by sinful men, but he has been raised. He has been exalted. He has been vindicated. By God. He is the living stone. Again, God worked, sovereignly worked through man's rejection in order for Jesus to defeat sin, to defeat death, to defeat Satan himself, and to secure salvation for his people. And that's where this passage is going then. It's saying Jesus then is the stone upon which God would build his church. Look back with me at our text, verse 4 says, as you come to him, talking to the believers, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, believers, are, are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, where we see the vindication of Jesus. He is is the fulfillment of all these promises that God made through his prophets. You see in the text how how many quotations Peter is using, right? From from Isaiah and from Psalms. In verse 6, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, 16. And think about the context of Isaiah. What was happening in the time of Isaiah? Well, God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Judah. And he was declaring that judgment was coming. Right? Judgment was coming on the people because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. To their covenant with Yahweh. The Lord was announcing through Isaiah that he would exile them from the land. And that the temple would be destroyed. Get that. The temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians. It was going to be a devastating judgment on Judah because they were going to be, we talked about this a lot when we went through Zechariah, right? The importance of the temple to them. That was the place where God's presence dwelt. That was what marked them as God's people. And so this this was a devastating judgment that was coming through Isaiah from the Lord. They, they They would be cut off from the land. They would be cut off from access to God through the temple. God's blessing and special presence would no longer be among them. But if you know the book of Isaiah, 
you know that God in his kindness, even in the very same book that he's pronouncing judgment, he, also, he doesn't end it there. He pronounces also hope and restoration in chapter 40 of Isaiah and, and beyond. He announces that this exile would not be forever. God announced through Isaiah and through other prophets that he would one day restore his people, reestablish Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. And what Isaiah 28, 16 is saying is he will do all of that. God will do that work of restoration through his his chosen and precious cornerstone. And and the, the Jews came to understand through the years that that was referring to the Messiah. God would rebuild his temple and it would be even more glorious than, than before. Yes, there was a partial uh, uh, regathering and restoring and rebuilding right in the time of Zechariah. We studied that, but that wasn't what the ultimate uh, restoration. That wasn't more glorious than Solomon's temple, right? Remember, they weeped at that temple, the guys that had seen Solomon's temple. No, God was going to restore, uh, his, regather his people from all across the, the globe. And he was going to rebuild a temple far more glorious than any that had ever been built before. And he would do it through his chosen and precious cornerstone, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that temple, loved ones, is you and me. It's the church. <laughs> That's the glorious temple he's building. That's what... Uh, This passage is teaching us there in verse 5. He is rebuilding a a temple that will last forever. Be a place where God's presence dwells. Where where people meet with God. Where God is worshipped. Where his glory is seen. And like I said, we'll, we'll talk even more about that next week. But notice that Jesus is that cornerstone. Although he was rejected by the human builders... He's been given that place of supreme honor. He has become the cornerstone of the holy temple, the eternal temple that God is building, the church. And you know the cornerstone is the most important piece of any building, right? It's it's the first piece that's laid. It's the the most essential piece of the foundation. It's what determines the the size and the lines and direction and, and strength of the foundation, And so the cornerstone has to be true. It has to be strong. Otherwise, the building itself will will not be square. It will will not be sturdy. It will collapse. But we have a sure and secure cornerstone. It's Christ. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his finished work is the cornerstone of the church. The church is built on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember what what Jesus declared in Matthew 16 at that important turning point in in Jesus' ministry. He's he's called the twelve to him. They've They've been with him. They've been following him. They've been hearing his teachings, seeing his miracles. They've been hearing the the Jewish leaders uh, scoff at him and, and, and argue with him. And so in Matthew 16. Jesus says, who are people saying that I am? Well, some say you're, you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say, right? And he says, but who do you say that I am? And by God's grace, Peter spoke for the 12 and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. And what did Jesus say 
to, his, to Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Upon this rock, upon this confession of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Christ is that precious and powerful cornerstone. He is, he is the foundation. He is the, the centerpiece of what God is doing throughout history. The church exists because of Christ, because of Christ's reconciling work. Think about it. None of us would be here. There would be no church. There would be no people of God without Jesus Christ. Because apart from him, we would all still be lost in our sins. We would all still be enemies of God. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we have peace with the Father, that we have access to the Father, that we're adopted into his family, that we're placed together in the family of God. And that's what Peter preached, isn't it, in our scripture reading in Acts 4.11. He said, because he had heard Jesus say this too, right? Jesus said this in, I think it was Matthew 21, when he was... um, confronting the, the Pharisees, confronting the religious leaders. He quoted this, this, uh, these Old Testament texts about being the cornerstone. And so Peter, no doubt remembering that, by the Spirit says in Acts 4.11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's talking to the leaders. You, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You guys were supposed to be caring for God's people. You were supposed to be leading God's people, but yet you've rejected the very cornerstone, the very heart of what God is doing, the the very uh, essence of how God's people will be formed. (laughs) That was Acts 4.11. Then the very next verse, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is chosen, he is precious, he is unique, he is the only cornerstone. He is our only hope of standing before before God. Christ alone is the solid rock on which we stand. And so may he be precious to you today. He's the foundation of the church. He's, He's the anchor of our souls. And that leads me to our third heading then. Salvation through Christ. We saw the rejection of, of, of Jesus, that vindication of Jesus, now salvation through Jesus. Salvation through Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. Again, Peter talking to the, the Christians to whom he's writing, talking to the believers who are scattered. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you come to him, well, what does that mean to come to him? Well, look at verse 6. The context tells us, and no doubt Jesus and other passages tell us this as well, but it, right here in the very passage we see it. Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Coming to Jesus is believing in Jesus. It's believing that he died and rose again. It's believing that he is your only hope for being made right with God. By God's grace, the Spirit, as the gospel is proclaimed, he opens your eyes so that you see that Jesus is precious. So you see and believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord. 
You see that he is, is loving and precious because he lived and died in your place so that you would not face the punishment you deserve, so that you would have eternal life, so that you would be with God forever. What a precious Savior. And so verse 4 says that as we come to him, as we, by God's enabling, believe in him, we are saved, we are made living stones. The Spirit unites us to Jesus, the living stone, so that we too become living stones. His life becomes our life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive through, through our union with Jesus Christ. Think about that today. The, the, the beauty of, of, of the gospel. As a Christian, yes, though we're still suffering under the curse and, and our bodies, our outer bodies are wasting away, we have been made alive. We've been given eternal life. And inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And one day we'll be united in his resurrection as well. Christ's life becomes our life. We've, we've seen this already in 1 Peter chapter 1, haven't we? Our old self that lived in rebellion to God dies when God saves us. And God gives us new life through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're made living stones. We're joined together by the Spirit, built into God's holy temple. The place where God's presence dwells. The place where God's glory can especially be seen. Ephesians 2 is a parallel passage. You might jot that down. Ephesians 2. I'll just read verses 19 through 22. There's more context you could read. But there the Apostle Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And now he goes to the building metaphor here. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, we'll talk more about the church next week, Lord willing. But for today, loved ones, let's praise God for Christ, our cornerstone. It's through Christ now that we're reconciled to God. It's through Christ now that we have new life and that we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us personally and, and among us corporately. How precious is our cornerstone. We, without him, we would have no hope. We would have no life. We're now a part of the, of the church, the holy temple where God is worshipped and made known. Again, thinking back to what Peter's already been rejoicing in. Now we are living stones and we have a living hope. We have the promise that we'll be with God forever when Christ returns or God calls us home. But until that day, we still face suffering in this life. And again, we think about the people that Peter was writing to originally. The believers who were scattered, the believers who were starting to experience some of that persecution under the Roman Empire. Yes, they, like we, not only deal with the trials and hardships of just living in a fallen world, but we also experience persecution for our identity with Christ. 
And again, that's the original readers were experiencing that. They were sharing in the sufferings of Christ. They, were, they too, like Jesus before them, were experiencing ridicule and hardships for being a Christian. But do you see the encouragement that is coming through this passage for them and for us? Peter encourages them that yes, just as you're experiencing some of the sufferings that Jesus did, so too you will share in his vindication in the end. Behold, I'm laying in Zion, look again at verse 6 and 7 now. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, verse 7 says. <laughs> By God's grace, those, those um, Christian, first century Christians and us today as well, By God's grace, we can endure the suffering. We can endure the hardships. We can endure the persecution that comes. Because we know that when Christ returns, we will be raised with him in glory. We too will be vindicated. We too will enjoy eternal honor with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. How precious are those verses, right? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Oh, Christian, take heart. The world will shame you. The world will ridicule you. The, the world will hate you. Saying you're, you're narrow-minded, saying you're, you're, you know, this and that phobic, right? But in the end, you will not be put to shame. You will be given honor. Not because of anything in us, but because of our union with the chosen and precious cornerstone. So by God's grace, we can endure that suffering now because of our salvation through Jesus. And then lastly, our last heading that we see here in verse, the end of verse 7 and, and then verse 8 is division over Jesus. We've seen the rejection of Jesus and the vindication of Jesus and salvation through Jesus. But Peter points out a reality that, that we all recognize, really, or we should. That there's division over Jesus. Look again at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling And a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Remember, we we talked about that recently. Disobeying the word is means disobeying the gospel. They're, They're rejecting the good news, the proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He is the Savior of all who believe. But verse 8 says Jesus, as predicted by the prophets, is also a stone of stumbling. He's also a rock of offense. To those of us who, by God's grace, recognize who he is and what he has done, he's, he's precious, he's loved. But to others, he's, he's offensive. Paul said the same thing to the Corinthians as they were trying to follow Christ in a culture that, that prided itself in its, in its wisdom and its sophistication. And 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see that? When God, by His grace, opens our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, He's precious. He's chosen. He's loved. He's the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. But sadly, many are, don't, don't see that. They don't believe that. They're offended by Jesus. They're tripped up by Jesus. He's, he's literally a stone of stumbling to them. To them excuse me. They're offended that Jesus would call them sinners in need of a Savior. They think that Jesus and, and Christianity is too narrow of a way to claim to be the only way to God. They see Jesus' call to abandon all other allegiances to follow him as too demanding. They don't want to believe that he is the only way to be forgiven. Surely if I just try hard enough, surely if I just try to be a good person and try to help people and, and, and try to leave this world a better place, surely I can get to heaven on my own. They're offended. It offends their pride to say no. Apart from Christ, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. You, we must humble ourselves to come to Jesus. That we, nothing in our hands can we bring, but simply to his cross we cling. And it's recognizing Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's not a call to, to, to just add Jesus to our life. It's not a call to say, okay, well, yeah, maybe uh, he's one of many ways. No, he's the only way. He, he alone is the cornerstone of what God is doing in this world. Again, it's not a call to just add Jesus to our life like, you know what, I'm going to add a brick to the building I want to construct. That really struck me as I was studying this passage this week, right? You know, it's like... Uh, you got the builders who reject Jesus, right? They're building their own thing. Mankind is always building its own thing, right? The Tower of Babel, and, and it happens in each center apart from Christ. We're building our own kingdom. We're building our own way. And, and hey, you know, Jesus, yeah, I like some of the things about him. I'd like to kind of add him onto my, to my building. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. It's what is God building because that's what's going to last. And God is building a temple for his glory where Christ is the cornerstone. We don't add Christ to, to our building. We need to be built into him. We need to be united into him. And so, again, the reality we see in this passage and that we see throughout Scripture is that there's only two groups of people when it comes to Jesus. You're either trusting in Jesus or you're rejecting you may say, well, I don't have any animosity toward Jesus, but you're, if you're not coming to him, you're rejecting his claims. You're rejecting God's uh, endorsement of him, that he is precious and the only way to, to be reconciled to our creator. And so Jesus causes division. We need to recognize that as believers, as we bring the gospel to others, and, and I recognize it even this morning as I proclaim the message. 
And I pray that no one in this room would be tripped up by Jesus. I pray that no one in this room would would stumble over the gospel. That you would have the humility to recognize that that your only hope for salvation is, is Christ alone. And that you, by God's grace, would see that Jesus is precious. That he's precious. That he's a loving Lord. That he's a righteous king. That he's a powerful savior. And that you would come to him and be joined into him. That you would place all your hope, the the anchor for your soul, for your eternal destiny, on Christ, the cornerstone. Because if you reject him, If you, like the Jewish leaders before, uh, examine him and say, you know what, I'm not interested, I'm going to cast him aside, then you do that to your own eternal peril. When Matthew, excuse me, when Jesus in Matthew 21 was discussing this with the, or was proclaiming this, I should say, to the Jewish leaders, he said in Matthew 21, 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And like it says in this passage, honor for those who believe. But what's implied is judgment for those who don't. Jesus is coming again to gather his own and judge his enemies. And those who have not embraced him as Savior will face him as judge. And then you'll face eternal punishment in hell. So I pray that no one would reject Jesus today, that no one would get tripped up over Jesus today. That you would see Jesus as a precious Savior and loving Lord and that you would come to him. That you would come to him and have life. Come to the living stone and have life. Have eternal life. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, let us rejoice in God's grace lavished on us through Jesus Christ. May we continue to come to him daily. May we continue to to enjoy our union with this living stone. May we come to him daily, abiding in his love. May we we rejoice at being a part of this holy temple and, and part of the church and faithfully live out the one another's of scripture. And may Jesus become more and more precious to us all the days of our life. Amen. Amen. Now we want to take the Lord's Supper together as believers. A a tangible way we can be reminded of the preciousness of Jesus, of of the, the sacrifice of Jesus, how he is our cornerstone. And so I'd ask the men who are going to come serve us to please come forward. The Lord's Supper is something that the our Lord Jesus has given to us, has given to his church uh, as a way for believers to be encouraged, to be reminded of of what Christ has done for them, to, to proclaim his death until he comes, to be reminded that he's coming again. So the Lord's Supper is open for, to all who are believers, to those who have publicly identified with him. And if you're not uh, a Christian today, I would ask that you please just let the elements pass by but that you would pray and ask God to show you how precious Jesus is, that you would come to understand how he is the cornerstone, how he is um, our only hope for salvation.
And so let's pray. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper together, may you encourage your people. May you uh, remind us of the grace that you've shown us. May you uh, enlarge our heart for Christ. May we be reminded of how precious Jesus is. May we repent of, of things that have been more precious to us lately than Jesus. May you help us to cast those aside, Lord, and rejoice in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.